11, and we're going to cover verses 16 through 24, and we're continuing a passage from uh, beginning early and earlier in the, in the chapter, and, and really it will continue into the, into the next few verses, but we're going to look at uh, this passage, uh, this, uh, what I'm calling a condemned generation. Before we do that, let's, let's have a brief prayer. Father, we do need you, as we sang, in this hour particularly, we need you. We, we recognize the importance of your words. We recognize the significance, the, re, the, the importance of having them in our lives. And as, you, as your word tells us, it's, it's the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. It guides us. It sanctifies us. So we, we ask that you would speak to us, your servants, as we hear. Give us uh, understanding. Give us uh, ears to hear that we might obey, that we might listen and do what we're told, believe what we're shown. And uh, as Mark's saying, that we may better love you with all our heart and soul and mind. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we have in these verses here, Matthew eleven sixteen, is a description of condemned people. I think you'll see that pretty clearly as we move through this. This is really an announcement of judgment. Judgment really isn't a popular preaching topic, and it's probably not what the preaching textbooks tell you to do on the first Sunday of the year. Uh, people don't like to hear about bad news. Uh, we don't like to hear about it, especially when we go to church. Indeed, many people go to church wanting to be encouraged, uplifted, simply to have their conscience soothed. Society in America and Western culture prefers to hear good news over bad. Grace, forgiveness over judgment and particular sins. But here, Jesus is speaking about a certain judgment. Be very specific on this. It's a clear and coming condemnation for a particular people, and we would do well to listen to heed the message. It might make us uncomfortable. You might sit here and think, ah, not another judgment sermon, a condemnation sermon. Stanley Hauerwas once wrote, the gospel is judgment, because otherwise it would not be good news. And so, as we begin in verse 16, may we remember the words of verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, if you remember at the beginning of chapter 11, Jesus was speaking to a crowd of people about John the Baptist. John had sent some disciples. He was in prison. He sent some disciples to Jesus to ask if he really was the one who was supposed to come as the Messiah or not. And Jesus sent word back to, the, uh, to John through the disciples to remind him of all of the works that he had done in his ministry. Lepers were healed. Uh, the blind received their sight, the lame walked, the poor had the gospel preached to them. But then Jesus began speaking to the others who had been listening in on this conversation. About a month ago we covered this passage, it's been quite a while now. But uh, the, the, he began to explain to them about John's role in redemptive history or salvation history. Uh, just a very, very brief overview. In verse number 9, he called John a prophet, more than a prophet. In verse 10, he called him the messenger of Messiah. In verse 11, he is the greatest born among women. And then in verse number 14, he is Elijah who is to come. 
And the people needed to realize and recognize that there's a connection between John the Baptist and the Messiah. Because if they could see John's role in preceding Christ, then they would be able to see Jesus as the Christ. Uh, in, In the same way, if they were willing to accept it, as verse 14 tells us, that John was Messiah's forerunner and that the Messiah was going to be coming after him, then they would also be able to accept that Jesus was the one who was to come and who did come after John. If they would receive John in his ministry, then they would be able to receive Jesus and his ministry. And as verse 15 reminds us, and and, and as he finishes this little part of his uh, speech to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Of course, many did not hear. Many did not receive Jesus. They did not receive John. And these are the people that Jesus is speaking about in verse 16. And he calls them this generation. So that's how we will refer to them as we move through this passage. Now, it's helpful for us to bring up a passage from Luke, as Luke wrote about this this event as well. Because Luke includes a verse that Matthew doesn't, and it helps to give us a little bit of context, and you can look at it later, but it's in Luke 7 and verse 29. And Jesus says these words right after he said the part about that the greatest, that John is the greatest born among women, but the, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. And then Luke 7, 29 says this, When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him, talking about John. So these religious leaders hadn't received John's ministry. And so it says that they rejected God's purpose for themselves. Now for a time, John the Baptist was an interest to them. Remember back in Matthew 3 when they came to the place where John was baptizing. When John saw them there, he called them a brood of vipers. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And over time, uh, John became less of a favorite of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of the day. But it seems that Jesus also received a similar reaction by these same Jewish leaders. And these are the people that Jesus is referring to with the phrase, this generation, in Matthew eleven sixteen. But I don't think it's limited only to the scribes and the Pharisees. I think we can include all of those who chose to follow their teaching instead of Jesus's. And notice what Jesus says about this generation. First, we'll see that it is a generation that is unresponsive. And then we'll look and see that it is a generation that is unrepentant. Notice the unresponsiveness of the generation in verse number 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. Jesus is saying you're acting like children. You're being stubborn, impossible to please, childish. And Jesus uses uh, popular games that, jil- that children played during this time to describe their indifference to the Messiah. 
Now, there seem to be two popular ways to understand what he's talking about here in in verses 16 and 17. Either the generation of people are the children who are calling out uh, to play the games and playing the flute and singing the song, and Jesus and John aren't responding, or Jesus and John are the ones calling out and the generation, the people, aren't responding. And it helps if we try to understand which one it, which one it means here, which one he meant, because, um, if you follow the thinking of these two ideas, they, they take you, uh, down some very interesting, uh, paths. They make very interesting suggestions, but ultimately they end up in the same place. They, they both end up with the same idea that Jesus and John and the generation of people were not on the same page. The people would not cooperate with God's ministry through Jesus and through John. And so that's, that's, that's the main understanding that we need to get from there is that they are not cooperative. They are stubborn children. And I think that based on what we read in 17, you can take a look at it for yourself, and I would encourage you to follow that, those two lines of reasoning and decide what you think it might be. I think that in verse 17, and based on what we read in verse 17, Jesus and John are the ones that are calling out to a generation acting like children. He's saying, nothing, you, nothing I do pleases. They're not interested in playing any of the games that are suggested. It seems that this generation is rather happy being bored and dissatisfied. And instead of finding something to do, they find something wrong with every suggestion. If you've ever dealt with children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, you, you can take them to Disneyland and they'll find something to complain about. Verse 17 talks about these two games that the children played and They were based on two big events within the Jewish community. One was the wedding game, and one was the funeral game. In our culture, the wedding game is probably something that children play. Most of the time, kids don't play funeral. But uh, kids, here's, here's an option here. So imagine a bunch of children are sitting around the marketplace, and one kid said, hey, let's play wedding. Um, uh, I'm going to be the pastor and, and, and Esther and, and Joshua, you'll be the, the bride and the groom. And then they look at each other and they're grossed out because that's what children do. And then, then they say, and they start divvying up and you get to be the, 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 the father of the bride and you're going to play the flutes because the music is important in the wedding. And then you guys are going to be the dancers because dancing was an important part of their wedding. And so here comes the bride and they're playing on their air flutes and they're having a good time. And when it gets time for the, the flute players to play their song and they're doing a good job the kids that were supposed to be the dancers just sat there we don't want to play wedding that's dumb that's stupid this is silly i don't want to play wedding so another kid says okay well then let's play funeral i get to be the dead body i call dibs on being the dead body and and the other kid says no no you're too big none of us can carry you um get johnny over there he's 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 smaller and, and we can carry him you can be the funeral director and uh, Johnny will be the, the, the corpse, and then, and then these other kids, they'll be the pallbearers. And then, now, we, an important part of the Jewish funerals, we got to have good weepers and wailers. So, um, you girls, you're going to be the, the mourners, and then, and then the rest of you will be the, the family and the friends. And so they start, they start going through the funeral game, but then when it comes time for the mourning, we don't want to play the funeral game. This is stupid. This is dumb. Why, why, I don't want to play this. Let's play something different. So the kids say, well, what do you want to play? We played the flutes, but you didn't want to dance. We sang the dirge, the funeral song, but you didn't want to mourn. And that's what Jesus is saying to this generation. He says, you're unresponsive. You won't 
go along with what, we, what we're doing, what John is doing, what I'm doing. They don't want to cooperate. No matter what game is being played, they're not interested. And Jesus further explains what he means in verse 18. Look there, he says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And John the Baptist's ministry, if you're familiar with his ministry, involved wearing camel skins and eating bugs. He didn't dress normally. He didn't eat the normal food that they would have eaten during that time. He was a bit of a, of a weirdo compared to normal society. He wouldn't drink. He wouldn't fellowship with them in the way he wasn't a man of the people. His ministry was marked by sternness and solemnity. His ministry was like the funeral game, very somber very serious. And for a while, John the Baptist was a hit. The people were going out in droves into the wilderness to see him and to be baptized by him and to hear him preach. But eventually, they grew tired of John. And people began to say things like, you know, he's got a demon. That's probably why he acts so weird. You know, he's not like the rest of us. It's, you know, probably because he's got something wrong with him up in the head. He's got a demon. But then Jesus comes along he enters the picture, and his ministry was as different from John's as a funeral is from a wedding. Funerals are marked by sadness and reflection and quietness. But weddings are joyous events. Weddings are happy times. You eat and drink and dance and laugh and celebrate long into the night. And that's how different Jesus' ministry was from John's. They didn't have to go out in the wilderness to find Jesus. He came to them. He went into their homes. He ate and drank with them, attended their weddings, special events. He lived among them as a man of the people, and yet this generation still wasn't satisfied. They called John's abstinence demon possession. And they called Jesus a glutton and a drunk because he celebrated life with the people. And they called him a, tax, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, which meant that they were accusing him of being guilty by association of the sins that these sinners committed. Jesus says, you're just like stubborn children. Nothing satisfies you. Nothing pleases you. But then he says that wisdom is justified by what it produces. The wisdom of God through John's ministry and then through Jesus' ministry is justified or vindicated by the fruit that it yields. Look at verses 18 and 19 again, if you will. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds or by her children. It reminds me of how Paul wrote in, in his epistles that the wisdom of God is folly to men, to those who don't believe. To the Jews, the gospel is a stumbling block. Isaiah wrote that God's plan of salvation will be a stone of offense, a trap, and a snare. Jesus told John the Baptist back in, in our chapter here in Matthew 11, in verse 6, He said, Blessed is the one who doesn't stumble over Me, who doesn't, isn't offended by Me. The people of this generation looked at what John and Jesus did. They listened to what they taught and they preached. They called it foolishness. They called John a demoniac and Jesus a drunk and a sinner. 
They stumbled over Jesus in unbelief. So when John came preparing the way for Jesus with a message of repentance, and then when Jesus came and continued that message of repentance and the message of salvation, the good news of salvation, the people of this generation didn't respond. Based on Matthew eleven fourteen, they were unwilling to accept it. They were indifferent, uncooperative, stubborn. And I wonder, as I read this passage, what about me? How responsive am I? What about you? Have you responded to the message of Christ? Of course, here Jesus is speaking to a, a specific group of people in the passage, but as we read the Scriptures, as we sit here now and each and every time we go to church or we, we sit and, and, and we listen to the, the ministry of the Word, whether through the radio or through the, the private devotions or in a church service like this, we each must do something with the truth that is presented. How do we respond? In many ways, John and Jesus had very different ministry models. We could call one like a funeral and one like a wedding. But both were part of God's plan. Both were ordained by God to bring the news of salvation to sinners. They were the same, though they were different. So ultimately, the problem was not with John or in Jesus the man. The problem was with God. The people of Israel had a problem with God. God had a plan. Israel didn't want to go along with it. They wanted salvation their way through works of the law. They wanted their version of Messiah. They wanted to play the game by their rules. So what kind of an attitude do you and I have? Do we happily go along with whatever God decides to do in this world or in your own life? Or do we stubbornly refuse to play along because that's not what I want to play. I want something different. When the game of life isn't going as you had hoped it would, how do you respond to God? When the Scriptures challenge your way of thinking or your behavior, what do you do? Do you go along with what the Scriptures say? Or do you make up your own rules? You ever played a game with a small child changes the rules as it suits them? I think that's how a lot of us play life. I don't care what the rule book says. I like it better my way. There are many people today, just as in Jesus' day, who tried to play the game of salvation by their own rules. We're reading about them right here. And this is the generation that is condemned simply for being unresponsive to Christ. But what about us? When God comes to us sitting in the marketplace, do we cooperate or do we not? Do we respond to Jesus or like Israel, do we sit by and criticize and find fault with God's plan? Carson writes, like disgruntled children, this generation found it easier to whine their criticisms and voice their discontent than to play the game. But not only do we find this generation unresponsive, we find that it is a generation that is unrepentant. Beginning in verse number 20, Jesus condemns certain Jewish cities, specifically the cities Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. 
Now, there's not a lot written about Chorazin. I found only one other passage where the word Chorazin is mentioned in the New Testament. And there's only just a few more references to the town of Bethsaida. But we do read a lot about Capernaum. Matthew 4 tells us that Capernaum was where Jesus kind of made his uh, home base for his, during his earthly ministry. If you remember uh, all the miracle stories that we studied in, in Matthew 8 and Matthew 9, they were all done in Capernaum. But all that we really need to know about these cities, and it wouldn't be a bad thing to, to you know, study these cities and figure out why he picked on these three or called these three out, but all that we really need to know about these cities is found in verse number 20. Look there. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. These were cities where Jesus had done many miracles. Remember, a miracle is done for the purpose of authenticating the ministry. The miracles weren't done just to add a few years to people's life or to ease some pain and suffering in someone's life. They were given so that people would recognize that God had approved of this person. That God, this was the sign by which the people could understand that what they say is from God by the miracle being done. There is an authentication. And so when Jesus did these miracles, it was a sign that God was with him. That's when Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3. He said this to him. He says, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So the people in these cities that Jesus talks about in chapter 11, they had seen the mighty power of God. He had witnessed miracles. They had heard Christ's teaching. But they didn't recognize who was right in front of them doing these things. They saw miracles. Many of them may have experienced one for themselves, but they didn't see the one doing the miracles. They didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus says to these cities, Woe to you. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin. That word carries with it a, a warning of danger. It's pretty much the exact opposite of the blessing proclamation. Remember Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek and blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are the pure in heart and blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And it's blessing, blessing, blessing on these people. This is the opposite. Woe. Woe. And it's not the way you talk to a horse. It's talking about woe on the judgment that is to come to you. In the Beatitudes, Christ declared blessing on certain people. Good news for you who are poor in spirit. Good news for you who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Here, He is announcing bad news. This is a lamentation. This would be similar to the, how we might use the word alas. It's a sense of pity. Why is Jesus lamenting? Why is Jesus speaking woe on Carson and Bethsaida and Capernaum, cities in which he had done many mighty works, many miracles, because they didn't repent. Despite the mighty works, the many mighty works that Jesus had done there, they remained unrepentant. They simply wouldn't change. They rejected his miracles. And in doing so, they rejected the Messiah. Look in verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. 
But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Because they rejected the miracles, because they spurned the kindness of God shown to them, they will receive greater judgment. They've been given a greater opportunity here, but because they remain unrepentant, they will now be given greater condemnation. Tyre and Sidon were Gentile cities that were infamous for their idol worship and wicked religious practices. We know about Sodom in Genesis 19. These are wicked cities. You can read your, your study, do your own research on these, but I think it's easy to understand these are wicked cities that Jesus is referring to, and these were unrepentant cities. It'd be very helpful for you to sit down and make a list. What is similar about these two groups of cities? What is different about these two groups of cities? Because they were both unrepentant. One was Gentile, one was Jew, both were unrepentant. And they will be judged, Jesus says. But the cities of Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon never were given miracles. They didn't have the Son of God among them. They never had a prophet. But Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum did. He says, you had all of that. You still didn't repent. You wouldn't respond to the somber dirge of John the Baptist. You wouldn't dance to the good news song that Jesus came and sang and played. You witnessed all the miracles. You heard the truth from God's Word taught in the synagogues, and you even heard it preached from the mouth of God's Son Himself. But you wouldn't repent. Yes, Sodom and Tyre and Sidon, they will be judged for their wickedness because they didn't repent. Their judgment will be just and fair. But you, Capernaum, because you were given more, you, Tyre and Sidon, because you were given greater opportunities and remained unrepentant, he says it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Again, I think about us today. We, in 21st century America, enjoying the benefits of Western civilization, we may not have witnessed the miracles like Capernaum did. We haven't physically seen or heard God speak and preach like He did in Bethsaida and Chorazin. But we have been given more opportunities than those around us. It doesn't take a whole lot of thinking to realize how much more we have been given here than in other parts of the world. There are places in the world today that have never even heard of Jesus. They've never seen a Bible. They've never had a Gospel witness. We would have to search a long time, far and wide, to find a person around here who didn't have some kind of an idea about Jesus. Most of us have Bibles in our laps, on our computers, our phones. Most of us have several copies of God's Word. Oftentimes I'll find a Bible left here on a Sunday and I'll give you a call and say, hey, you left it. It's okay, I got another one at home. I'll just pick it up when I come to church. And that's fantastic. That's awesome that you have so many copies available 
We have instant access to Bible teaching through the radio and podcasts, TV and internet, all these avenues. Churches are abundant and conspicuous. There's no fear of any of us being arrested this morning when we leave. Someone coming and persecuting us because we attended church. We have been given so much. The question is, then what are we doing with it? The opportunities that God has presented to us here that He has not given to those in our day and time on the other side of the world or that He's not given to those born at other times in history, He has given to us. What are we doing with it? God has blessed this country in ways that no other country has known. He has blessed this people to live in a day when opportunities to find the truth are literally at our fingertips. In Romans 2, Paul says, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? All the kindness that God shows us is given to us so that we will repent. It's not intended to pacify us, make us feel better about ourselves, to puff us up. God must love me more than He loves those people. It's to show us how rotten we are. The blessings that God gives us is to show us how wicked our sin is. It's to show us how good and how great and how loving and how kind God is. Paul continues that same thought. He says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Ask yourself the question, am I responsive to the message of Christ? Have I responded to God's kindness and blessing by repenting? I assume all of us have heard the message of Christ before. Have you responded to it? Have you ever responded to the message of Christ? Has there been a time when you heard the message and you can say, yes, I responded. Maybe you can't go back to a specific day and time in your life, but you can say, you know what? I have responded to the message. How did I respond? By repenting. I have turned to Christ from my own way of doing things. I'm, I'm playing the game God's way now. I do it. I, all we like sheep, Isaiah says, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Repenting is saying, I'm done going my way. I will go God's way. Jesus said, I am the way. If you've never responded to that message, do it today. Repent. Believe. If you have responded to Christ, say, I have come to Him in faith. I am a Christian. I'm a believer. I'm not part of this generation. Let me remind you something then. Responding to Christ is not a one-time thing. Repenting. Is not a one-time thing. I'm not talking about being saved more than once. That, that, that is a one-time thing. God saves you. You don't have to worry about that anymore. If God, if God has saved you, you've been brought into the family of God, you don't have to worry about, oh no, what, what did I do to get myself out of it? I'm not talking about that, but I am talking about right now as you sit here and each and every Sunday as you sit and you hear the preaching of God's Word, are you responding to that? 
as, as you go through your life each and every day and sin creeps into your heart and mind because you're not perfect just like the rest of us, what are you doing with that? You're just kind of ignoring it? Kind of made it your little pet? Or do we repent of those sins? That's why we have a time of, of confession in our service as a reminder, at least on a weekly basis, God, what have I done that you're not pleased with? God, what is in my heart that I have allowed to, 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 to sit and, and rest in and begin to, to take hold and that you don't like because I don't want it there? Before I was a Christian, I didn't care. I liked my sin. I liked what was going on. But when, I, when Christ saved me, I, I don't want that anymore. And Paul says, I'm, I'm not perfect now that I'm saved. In fact, I find that the things that I, I shouldn't do, I do. And the things that I, I should do, I don't do. Because I don't like that. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from the body of this death? And he says, I thank God it is Christ Jesus. Are you repenting? Are you responding? We still have sin. We must continually search our hearts for sinful desires, prideful behaviors. And the Spirit of God moves within us, maybe even now as we're reading the Scriptures and, and, and something that is brought up and ever, have you ever sat in church and think, how does He know about that? I didn't tell anybody I was doing that. And the truth is, I don't know about that. But God does. God speaks to my heart sometimes about something that the preacher's not even talking about. What do we do then? We must go to God. Seek His cleansing. Find His forgiveness. When the Spirit of God moves within us and points out truths from His Word or reveals a proud thought or selfish desire, we must respond to that. We must repent. And when we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that he who has ears to hear, let him hear. How am I responding? Am I responsive to Christ? Am I repenting? Does my life show an attitude of repentance? I'm not talking about a one-time thing. Yes, I repented in long ago and I've forgotten about it, but I've got God on a barrel now because I did this thing and now it's good. It doesn't matter. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about as the Holy Spirit reveals things. What do you do with that? I don't want to become part of this generation. I want you to be part of this generation. How will we respond? Let's pray.